Hello, I'm David Mosgrob. Welcome to Open to Debate. Climate change is real, it is caused by human beings, and it is an existential threat to humankind. Politicians and industry leaders now claim to be taking it seriously, but their performances often fall short of their promises. Theoretical physicist and author Stephen Koonin, however, extends climate critique to scientists and the media, arguing that while climate change is real, the consensus conclusions we have reached are overstated, the science is often miscommunicated or misused, and our policies are headed in the wrong direction. At Open to Debate, we disagree with Dr. Koonin's thesis, but we ask nonetheless, what is to be done about climate policy? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Stephen Koonin, university professor at New York University and director of the Center for Urban Science and Progress, former undersecretary for science at the U.S. Department of Energy under President Obama, and author of Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. Let's start with your book itself. Unsettled what climate scientists tells us, uh, science tells us what it doesn't and why it matters. We'll get into the details and to critiques in a little bit, but first, can you give me a sense, uh, a summary of your argument, sort of beginning with the fact that you make it very clear that you believe climate change is real, but uh, then assessing a little bit where you think the consensus has gone wrong with the facts? Uh, you know, the consensus hasn't gone I mean, the science itself is not wrong. And it's, uh, you know, everything I've written in the book is uh, very much out of the reports of the quality literature. Where things have gone wrong is when we describe our understanding and uncertainties about the climate to non-expert readers. And they have gotten, I believe, a hyped up misrepresentation of what's going on and what is likely to go on. And consequently, they're not making the best informed policy decisions. And I wrote the book to try to circumvent that long chain of information and misinformation from the scientific research uh, down to the media and politicians and give people a sense of what the science really says. Where does it go wrong then? So if we imagine this as a sort of chain of information that begins with the scientific community doing peer-reviewed research in academia and in institutes, and then that goes along down to the, you know, the average newsreader, at what point does something become distorted? If, if the argument is that, okay, well, there's, there's a fundamental distortion with, with the science, where does that happen and how does it happen? Yeah, largely, it happens in the transition from the assessment report that's put out either by the UN or the US government uh, and the summaries for policymakers of those reports. And then it gets, of course, even worse as it gets to the media. Although even sometimes in the reports themselves, you find issues of misrepresentation. I can go into one if that's- uh, uh, Of course, yeah. So if you look in the most, I'll go into two. If you go into the most recent UN assessment report, so-called AR6 assessment report six that was issued on August 9th, they have a description of sea level rise. And the only graph you find that shows any observed data about sea level rise is a tiny graph showing the sea level has risen about a foot uh, since 1900. 
uh, and then various scary projections of how fast it might rise in the future. Of course, the real issue is not the rise itself, but how fast it's rising. And what the data clearly show and previous UN reports show is that there are lots of ups and downs over the decades in the rate of sea level rise. For example, it was comparably high in the 1940s as it is today, and it went through a minimum in the 1970s, and then it started to climb back up. There's no hint of that variability in the report. In fact, they, I think, deliberately word things so that it's obscured. Um, and I think that that's quite dishonest because, in fact, it makes the recent decades look not so unusual compared to the 1930s when human influences were much smaller. Now, maybe it's okay and one can explain all of this. Maybe they can't actually explain the 1930s rise, but it's an example of a subtle um, misrepresentation that feeds into the hysteria about surging sea levels. Let me give you one more, which is at a higher level. When that same report was issued on August 9th, uh, Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the UN, said famously, code red for humanity. Well, you can search all 3,949 pages of that report for phrases like existential threat, climate disaster, and you don't find them at all. You do find the phrase climate crisis once. That's not a scientific finding in the report, but it's a description of how the US media have oversimplified the discussion. Okay, those are two examples. Without a doubt, I mean, the, the, the media translation work is always a challenge. And certainly the average person is not reading even the UN report, let alone the peer-reviewed work. And so it does put a lot of power in the hands of those who are doing the, the, the translating work. And I, I want to come back around to some of those examples in a few minutes. But first, I want to get a little bit into this idea of, of whether the science is settled or not, because it seems to me that there's, there's a, an important nuance here. Uh, you know, do, do, do climate scientists actually claim that the science is settled? Because from the sense that I get from those that I read and those I've spoken to, uh, they admit there's plenty of room within the probabilities. They accept that the models are imperfect. There's nonetheless a consensus that climate change is real, human-driven, and, and significant, and, and a threat. Uh, and, and therefore, the science isn't itself settled. It, it's variable. So who is saying that it's settled? Well, uh, certainly John Kerry has said that. Um, you can search for the science is settled on the web, and you will find numerous uh, instances where you see it in the media. Um, John Kerry, um, I don't know, I, I can try to find other direct quotes, but you see it a lot in the media. It's politicians and, and it's journalists. Yeah, right, right, right. I think you can, uh, you know, there is, just to give you another instance of that, while they're not saying it explicitly, there is an organization called Covering Climate Now of a number of prominent media outlets who refuse to run any stories that challenge the current consensus. They have an organization that's on the web and basically say, we're not going to challenge the current consensus. The, the, as in the, they, they don't 
talk about dissenting studies. They don't talk about... Yeah, anything that would, would detract from the statement that we've already broken the climate and we're headed for certain disaster. What does a better conversation look like, though? So, I mean, how do we have a conversation in, in among politicians, the media, the public at large, that says... Okay, we've got we, plainly climate change is a real phenomenon. We can we can see it, and there's a a, a risk. Now let's talk about what that risk is, because it seems to me the debate here isn't about whether or not climate change exists. The debate is the, the extent to which there is a risk and what that risk implies, and what therefore needs to be done. And now I'm of the uh, uh, the school who sees it as a significant risk, but you know both both in terms of weather and patterns uh, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. geopolit the, the geopolitics that emerge from that as well. Which, in fact, one of the things that scares me the most is the geopolitics of, of dealing with disasters. Uh, but, but, okay, say we can have that debate. What does that look like in a way that doesn't become torqued? From both, from, from, especially from the, the, size, you know, from the size of, of, of deniers who will use these, these uh, counter-arguments to effectively deny climate change. Right. So let me just start. I, I don't like the word climate change. Um, because uh, it implies that the only reason the climate is changing is because of human influences. Uh, I think, you know, there are two separate conversations. One is how do we reduce human influences on the climate? And another one is how do we adapt or how do we deal with a climate that might be changing for whatever reason? And of course, natural variability is, is very strong. I think, you know, the conversation to be had, and we've not really had it, is one about policies that express priorities and values for society, mm -hmm. but they have to be informed by an accurate perception of the science. And so, for example, when the official reports say that the expected economic impact of a few degrees of warming by the end of the century, is a few percent of GDP. That's actually a pretty small number. Now, there may be other reasons why you want to reduce human influences, but we need to get a proper picture of the scale and scope of what the likely impacts are. And I believe they have been exaggerated, at least compared to what's written in the reports. Once everybody has got a good picture of that, then you can get on to a discussion of what could we do? How um, impactful will what we're doing be on human influences? Uh, what will be the costs? What are the downsides? What are other priorities that we will be neglecting if we undertake certain courses of action? That's the discussion to be had. That's not a discussion for experts. It's a proper discussion for politicians and other elements of society who in the end are the people who should decide what priorities uh, and values are. I, I want to pick up for a moment on the economic point. Uh, one of the, I mean, one of the things we do is we use heuristics. I mean, we, you know, those of us who, who aren't experts in this have got to rely on 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 heuristics that we find in the world, whether it's climate yep. scientists or organizations or whatever it might be. One that I've paid close attention to over the years is insurance companies. Mm 
you know, this, it's the old adage of follow the money, but there's something to it. And, you know, insurance companies seem to be concerned about this and have started to, to some extent, put their money where their mouth is. And I wondered is, you know, what do we make of an insurance company saying, okay, we've got to start hedging and we've got to start preparing for this because this is, this is the, you know, a massive threat. I mean, does that not suggest that there's a bigger economic risk than perhaps we might think if we've got insurance companies? Well, uh, you know, uh, I've seen the, um, sometimes occasionally from the inside, how the insurance companies do their risks. I've seen the people who advise the insurance companies. Um, and I see the kind of reports that the insurance companies put out about the risk. Uh, those reports, again, I believe are disconnected from the actual science. Um, and I can't believe that there isn't, you know, some business opportunity in inflating the risk. So all of those things together tell me I'm not necessarily going to pay attention to what the insurance companies per se say. When I look at the actual data over the last hundred years about, let's say, hurricane damages in the U.S., as a fraction of GDP, they haven't changed in a century. Nor have the storms gotten more intense over a century or more frequent. This is in the U.S. particularly? Yeah, this is U.S. Uh, North Atlantic hurricanes. Right. I mean, uh, we just had, you know, I, I teach climate science here at NYU uh, every Monday night. And we just had a student talking about a paper, floods in India, right? Terrible floods kill lots of people. You look at the actual precipitation data for India over a century, there's no trend. But what has happened is there are a lot more people in India now. There's a lot more infrastructure to get covered when a flood happens. And so those numbers go up. What about, I want to pick up something on, on, on heat waves yeah. um, and, and a pushback that you got from a, a journalist in, writing in the Scientific American. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you know the piece that I'm no, talking about. No, no, go about. ahead, but just remind me what they, what they actually said. Well, so this was, you know, this was in response to you saying heat waves in the U.S. are now, and I'm quoting, are now no more common than they were in 1900, mm -hmm. and that the warm in, uh, warmest temperatures in the U.S. have not risen in the past 50 years. And, and the pushback from uh, Gary uh, Yo, uh, yeah, uh, Yo or Yohi, Yo, yeah. Yo, is that um, it, it sort of depends on what you mean by heat wave, for one, and that uh, globally, mm -hmm. there's a different story than, than say, in the United States. I mean, it, when, you're, when you're going through examples, um, it, it certainly matters what you're comparing to what. And so how do you uh, stack, say, particular examples from the U.S. versus gl global trends? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, Yo's criticism, I think, is quite unfounded. Uh, those statements that I made are demonstrated right there in figures 6.2 and figure 6.3, I think, of the 2017 uh, US government report on climate science. And uh, you can see it right there in the figures. And many other people have written and said, yeah, I see what you've said, Steve. Um, compared US compared to the rest of the world, well, it's important to note that the US has the densest longest and best curated record of daily temperatures. 
And uh, as you get to other parts of the world, it gets to be less and less good. I have no doubt that the world is warming, okay? But the issue here is record high temperatures and uh, daily record high temperatures the frequency of daily record highs and heat waves. Gary's complaining about what the definition is of heat waves. Uh, I didn't make the definition. The guys who put the report together actually say quite explicitly what the definition is. So I wish Gary had read the report before he started criticizing me. I, I want to move beyond that particular uh, piece to a broader conception of the consensus. And so as I mentioned, you know, climate scientists themselves will admit that there are limits and uncertainties when it comes to, to the science. Mm -hmm. uh, we've already established it's clear that the planet is warming. Uh, let's look at sea rise, for instance. I mean, some of you can track by way of, of NASA. You know, there are scientific organizations that are sounding the alarm too. It's not yep. just journalists. It's yep. not just policymakers. Yep. Uh, how, how do we get to a point if it's true that the consensus is is off or that it doesn't the data doesn't fully support the conclusions that are drawn for policy I mean how is it that so many credible scientists and organizations are off the mark uh, especially when you look at someone like NASA who uh, you know presumably uh, is playing it straight I mean they've got you know no particular reason to be exaggerating sea uh, level rise, uh, or unless, unless they do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was in the government for two and a half years. Yes. And uh, certainly what you say on the outside is modulated by the particular administration priorities and policies. Otherwise, you don't work for the government. But even if you look at the NASA data, or you look at the IPCC data or the university data, the rate of sea level rise, as I mentioned before, has gone up and down. It was high in the 1930s. It's similarly high today, but it was pretty low in the 1970s and low before that. And so unless you can explain all of those ups and downs, which they can't, we don't have an explanation for that. It's kind of hard to say, the most recent rise is human influences, and uh, it's going to surge. And in any event, do you know how high, how fast it's rising right now? What was the last? Over the last few decades. Yeah. A couple millimeters. Yeah, millimeters a year. Three millimeters a year. Okay. That's a foot a century. We, we do get into trouble at, at a foot, though, right? I mean, it's not like... Well, you know, over the, I mean, timelines matter here, of course, of right? Course, I mean, of course, It was, you know, if we're talking a decade, we're, you know, it's one thing. If we're talking a century, it seems to be another. But that, that seems to be an argument for support of long-term adaptation and mitigation. Absolutely. Either way, right? Absolutely. We have time, you know. Let me, can I shift to climate economics for a second? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Please do. So, you know, Bill Nordhouse won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2018 for the following realization that if you're going to decarbonize there is an optimal pace at which to do it if you decarbonize too rapidly reduce emissions too rapidly you entail costs costs associated with societal disruption and there will be a lot of disruption as we decarbonize as we can talk about and costs entailed with deploying immature technologies that could be better if you waited a couple decades. 
On the other hand, if we decarbonize too slowly, we incur a greater climate risk that human influences grow and bad things might happen. And so the optimal rate of decarbonization balances those two together. Right. There are, of course, lots of uncertainties in trying to figure out exactly what that optimum is. But at least in Nordhaus's Nobel lecture in 2018, he says we could let the temperature at the end of the decade rise, I'm sorry, the end of the century, rise to three or more degrees optimally before we start to bring it down by mitigating emissions. Now, Paris is striving for one and a half degrees. We're not going to make that. Two degrees, I think, is highly doubtful as well for reasons we can go into. And so the politicians have gotten way out over their skis in terms of the scope and urgency with which they're trying to push this. So we got time. Can build seawalls in the interim, etc. I mean, I find it a little bit curious that politicians would be, in in some ways, ahead of themselves, and then would fail to actually deliver on their targets. Because I think you're right. I mean, there's especially sort of looking at what's just gone on at, at COP twenty six. Twenty six. You know, it's hard to come away from that thinking that global leadership is taking one and a half degrees as a goal seriously. And they might say that they, you know, that's the, the goal, but there isn't a lot of action behind that to suggest it's going to happen. So, you know, it, it strikes me as odd that politicians would, would claim to take it extraordinarily seriously, but then set goals for themselves that they're just simply not going to meet. Yeah, well, I, you know, politicians, their job is to motivate and inspire and not necessarily to be either truthful or consistent. Yeah. <laughs> On this, we agree yeah, very much. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, you want to turn to COP26 for a second, or you want to keep... Yeah, uh, sure, absolutely. Up? I mean, the fundamental problem, and this is the 26th meeting of nations to try to deal with these issues, the fundamental problem is pretty easily stated. Six billion of the world's current eight billion people do not have enough energy. By some estimates, 3 billion people are really in trouble by not having very much energy at all. Energy use is highly correlated with economic activity and well-being. And as those 6 billion people need more energy to go up the economic ladder, um, the way they're going to get it is largely by fossil fuels. Fossil fuels supply 80% of the world's energy right now. They are convenient, they are reliable, which is very important, and that's what they're going to do because that's what in their immediate self-interest. Mm -hmm. Those of us in the developed world, well, you know, we can certainly reduce our emissions, we can pay some extra money to cut down greenhouse gases, build a better grid, maybe do EVs and so on, but it's not going to matter a hell of a lot because we're a shrinking fraction of the total emissions and the developed world, the developing world is going to outswamp us as they grow and develop over the next 30 or 40 years. Right now, the U.S. is 13% of emissions and that's going down as the rest of the world grows up. And so it hardly matters directly for the climate what the U.S. does. 
Now, you can say, well, we can exercise leadership and get everybody else to go along. But if your choice is have a lousy energy system or have one that's going to help me improve my quality of life, I know which I would pick if I were in India or China or Brazil or any of the other developing countries. Now, it's pretty simple. And yeah. that's exactly what's going on and has gone on since Paris and Copenhagen and, and so on. And I see it, frankly, as an irresolvable problem. Well, it certainly does present, I mean, on the leadership question, I have to say it presents an extraordinarily difficult proposition for the the rich states of the world to turn around and say to to poor states, well, we did it this way, you have to do it a different way, and it has to be more onerous. Echo imperialism, uh, right? Yeah. No, but I mean, I, it's true. I mean, and, and you know, nonetheless, I, you know, the, the pushback is, well, my, my God, we've, we've got to do something. But um, I, I know that GD, you know, the emissions per capita gets trotted yep. out quite yep. a bit. And, and that's yep. something I've, I've discussed in the past. And that's notable because it does make a moral point. Canada is a particularly egregious case yeah. when it comes to emissions per capita. But again, truly enough, a, a small percent of the overall global emissions right. Uh, high here, but globally quite low. But you, so your you know argument is that the ball game is in large part China, India, absolutely, uh, absolutely, Russia, absolutely. unless they unless they get serious about this. And again, there are factors in their self interest that work directly against it. Unless they get serious about it, uh, we're not going to reduce emissions significantly. Because I mean, right? So the the, the eyes on the the total uh, obviously emissions, and I can't remember what the specific Chinese emission total is. Uh, I, I, a percentage of the world. Yeah, is. it's it's large and growing. It's, I think it's like twenty five percent now. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And look, yeah. If I a metaphor we could use perhaps is if I'm getting chased by a bear, namely I'm in poor economic circumstances and I need energy. Uh, I'm going to run as hard as I can, and I'll worry about my cholesterol level uh, a couple decades from now. And this is what and this is your argument is is what is happening in China and, and India. Yeah, of course, of course, and particularly since the climate threat is distant, it's vague, and um, it's not obviously tractable. But it, it's also, and, and I think this is one of the. Uh, the global equity issues that that is extraordinarily important. It's also disproportionately born both globally and domestically, right? I mean, yeah, it's yeah. the people who are going to be left holding the bag right. aren't necessarily the people who have made the mess. Right. And b both, you know, globally, uh, right. rich states, poor states, but but domestically, I mean, yeah. it's going to be poorer folks yeah. who bear the brunt of this right. stuff, right? Right. I mean, and and the right thing to do in that case is, with immediate benefit, is to lift those people up in health and education and housing and so on domestically, do the same for nations internationally. That's a longstanding problem we haven't really addressed anyway. Uh, and that would just make them better able to deal whatever changes the climate throws at them. Right. But So this then becomes though a question of, uh, of timeline and scope. So I'm, I'm curious about the, the timeline. So you've said we need slow and steady pressure to change the yep. energy system and, and not drastic measures. And that's sort of the, the, the overall approach you've taken when we're talking about change. Because again, I mean, this is an important distinction for people who are listening. This isn't a matter of, of denial. This is fundamentally a matter of, of okay, what are the risks? What, what are the, the, what's the horizon for change and, and for that adaptation? Um, the, now, one pushback is, well, the risk of, of getting policy wrong uh -huh. 
is, 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 the, is the heart of the matter. So the question is, okay, well, if we overreact, uh, then that implies what you has, has earlier mentioned, where it's social, social costs. Right. If we get it wrong the other way and don't do enough early enough, it also implies significant risks and, and catastrophe. Right. What's the balance look like then if, if you're coming from, from your perspective? What's the, what's the balance? Well, again, I can just go by what the economists tell us. And, um, and that is, you know, you, we have room and time to let the temperature rise a bit. Let me, and, you know, I'm no expert economist, but let me give you something that does resonate with me. Since 1900 to the present, the globe has warmed 1.1 degrees on average. We've seen a few severe weather events uh, become more common, but many of them have not become more common at all, despite popular perception. During that 120 years since 1900, the global population quadrupled. We went from 2 billion to about 8 billion today. And during that time, we saw the greatest improvement in human well-being the planet ever saw in terms of nutrition, health, education, mobility, culture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right now, the UN is saying that by 2100, we'll see another 1.6 degrees of warming. Best estimate of what emissions will look like and sensitivity to the model. It's hard to believe that that is going to derail what we've been able to do so far. Much more significant a threat are conflicts, uh, pandemics, asteroids, getting the politics wrong, uh, and so on. And in fact, the UN report says that climate change on average will be a modest driver of human well-being relative to demographics, technology, regulation, trade, et cetera, et cetera. It, but it will, uh, d does that factor into the effect that, that extreme weather events and so on will have uh, in, in shaping those considerations? Yes, of course. They try to make the best estimate they can. They do it only as a function of temperature, but they fold in extreme weather, migration, agriculture, et cetera, right? By the way, agricultural yields have gone up spectacularly in the last 60 years, and there's every indication that they will continue to do so. That being a function of, of technological development. Yeah, we're very good at adapting to things. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Well, we've ensured that we've had to be. I well, mean, yes, <laughs> and we do. That's, that's what we do as a species, right? We even adapted to be able to live in Canada. Right? <laughs> yes, tell me about it. Yeah, right. More or less, More, yeah, you know, right, except right. for, yeah. you know, unless you're talking running a basic train service in Ottawa, or yeah, right. <laughs> uh, which we, we haven't quite figured out here okay. yet. Uh, we're learning. Yeah. Um, we are. <laughs> we do partial service until it derails, and then we just leave it. Oh uh, yeah. Sitting. Well, you're not alone in that. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. This is. But speaking of infrastructure, I want right. to go back to an infrastructure question you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about the the economics of this that there's a cost to deploying immature technology and that you know, giving it more time develops the, right. the technology. Right. Is this a concern that we can't deploy it as we go because there are sunk costs to, to building out the infrastructure? I mean, what's the... Yeah. 
So what's the argument? I'm thinking about I don't know. We can take an example: batteries, for example. Okay. Yes. uh, You know, we've had some problems with electric vehicles catching fires um, and massive recalls of uh, batteries in those vehicles. Um, The technology was either not ready or was poorly executed. No doubt, as uh, one goes along, they'll get better at it. But um, uh, there is a cost in going too fast on the deployment. Let, Let me give you another example. In California, I think in about 2005, Governor Schwarzenegger proudly initiated the hydrogen highway. And there were going to be hydrogen filling stations all up and down the uh, California, uh, and we were going to run cars on hydrogen. And you look today, 15 years later, and you ask how many hydrogen cars you got, and it's something like 7,000 out of 30 million in the state. So, you know, big fanfare, uh, technology clearly not ready for its time. Right. Is the, is the deployment, though, part of, of generating buy-in so that you can pursue the technology? Well, yeah. Because obviously uh, yes. there's, that's part of yeah, it, right? Yeah, of course, you come, down the do it? Right. You, you come down the learning curve. And, you know, mobile yes. phones are a wonderful example of that if you go back yes. 15 years uh, uh, and so on. But you've got to have confidence that you're really going to be able to come down the learning curve. And, uh, you know, at, every technology is different, but there is an optimal time at which to deploy it. Um, right. I, Are we there on EVs, for instance, though? It seems I, I to think, me that the, we, yeah, we're reaching a point. I think where... we're getting pretty close to that. I mean, I, I've said in previous years, by 2035 or 40, we'll probably see half of the vehicles sold uh, as plugins of one sort or another. Right. And that infrastructure is being built out now. Yeah. You know, there's still issues with it. Um, The grid in particular, the grid to be able to handle the charging of hundreds of thousands of vehicles at once um, and how we manage that uh, is going to be an issue. Right. But But that's always an issue. I mean, it was with gas stations too. Yeah, of course. You know, we'll figure it out. All right. I think, you know, the future of Light vehicle mobility is largely electric, or whether it's plug-in hybrids or pure EVs, that's fine. But, you know, there are other problems with that transition. Critical materials, if you've heard about that issue. Uh, Look, energy is about scale, and it's about reliability. And those are two kind of intrinsic problems that any new technology has got to address let me let's talk about grid reliability for a minute because i think that's Mm -hmm. another partial uh uh, severe misconception um a lot of people are advocating for wind and solar as a means of generating electricity and it is true that they are the cheapest in many ways per kilowatt hour generated the problem is that they are intermittent that they only generate when the wind blows or when the sun shines. And the thing that's most important for a grid beyond uh, safety is reliability. Mm-hmm. In North America, the electricity has got to be there 99.9 something percent of the time. And you can't do that with just wind and solar. You need some kind of backup. And whether the backup is nuclear power, or it's gas with carbon capture and storage, or it's big batteries, 
you have to have that. Otherwise, people you know, will not have electricity during the days when it's becalmed or cloudy. And it's not just days. Sometimes it's as long as five or seven days where you can't generate. And that's what makes a renewable grid so expensive is that backup. But is the question not how do you store then? Well, storage is one possibility. As I said, big batteries or if you've yeah. got pumped hydro. But, you know, an alternative, which is really ready now, are the small modular reactors, small fission. Yes. Right? Yes. And I'm a big fan of that. I helped get that started when I was in the DOE. Um, and the other possibility is natural gas with carbon capture and storage. But I, I actually think that's something of a, it's pretty awkward technology. I want to talk about nuclear energy for a moment because this is something I've been reading about, learning about fairly slowly, and I've been mostly publicly quiet about because it wasn't a debate I was quite ready to <laughs> wade into before I was prepared. But SMRs have really caught my attention, and I know in Canada we're talking SMRs now yep. and, and uh, you know developing them. Uh, and it strikes me that this is a huge part of the climate conversation that we are not having. Uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that we, when, when I think in the popular imagination, think nuclear power, we think old school nuclear power, you know, from the 1960s, 70s. And, and then, of course, then we think Three Mile Island or Fukushima or, you know, Chernobyl, of course. Um, you know, what's keeping us from having SMR conversations in the mainstream and taking this seriously as one way to produce you know, renewable um, energy. Well, uh, you know, it, it's... Or whatever you would call it. Right. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, Classified as renewable re, or not. Re, reliable, you know. clean energy, maybe. Yeah. All right. And, and look, these among the technically knowledgeable and technically literate people, people who've studied this problem, not just the technologies, but the general electricity problem, um, we've known this all along. Okay. And it is just the public, and like many things in this business, we've known it all along. And the public didn't want to hear it. Um, whether the media shut it out or the activists just turned a blind eye or ear, um, it wasn't discussed. But slowly, slowly, you see people coming around, and some of us just smile. So Michael Schellenberger, for example, has become a big proponent of nuclear and uh, disparaging of renewables. Well, Michael, I'm glad, you know, you learned. Right? <laughs> we could have told you that 20 years ago. Um, and I think a lot of this business is going to be like that. Um, people just don't have much energy literacy at all. I mean, I teach climate science in the fall, as I'm doing now, and I teach energy in the spring. And in both classes, to see the students' eyes open up when you tell them about one aspect or another that they have been misinformed about, um, that's one of the great pleasures of teaching. And, uh, so, you I think know, there's going to be a, yeah, yeah. a change then in Look, how we view nuclear? I, I mean, yeah. is that part of it, you, you know, getting people up to speed on the fact that we have new nuclear energy technologies yeah. that aren't the old yes. models that yes. we've yes. seen in the past, and it, right? In just the same way, we have new space technologies, right? I mean, SpaceX sure. and, and uh, the other you know, private space companies, it's a very different technology than what we went to the moon with or even the space station. So, right. Yeah, I think we get better at doing these things. I think another driver for change is if you look at the decarbonization plans that are being proposed uh, in the US, in the EU, uh, I assume in Canada as well, 
they are going, if they're implemented, they are going to start to bite ordinary people. You're going to see less reliability and more expense in the electrical grid. You're going to see reduced consumer choice in the vehicles. You're going to see a greater dependence upon imported oil, at least for the U.S., maybe not for Canada. Um, and when that starts to happen, people are going to say, please tell me again why we're doing all of this. And if there isn't a good answer, you're going to get a pushback that will be counterproductive to going uh, forward further. Yeah, and no, I, I think, uh, you know, both both domestically and globally, I think there's a, an issue and a serious equity issue there, too. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I do feel that. I also remind people, you know, just to come back around on nuclear power, mm -hmm. on that uh, mm -hmm. you know, in Ontario, for instance, you know, the vast majority of our electricity is zero carbon. Right. And 60% of that is nuclear. Ah, I didn't know that. No, no, yeah. It's, it's yeah. quite significant it's and, and has been for some time. Yeah, I mean, right. it's, it, it's funny because you would never in a million years, you know, think about that conversation in Ontario because it's not really a conversation we have very, very often. But 60% of it is nuclear. And nobody seems to really mind. Right. Do people know it or they probably <laughs> they don't, they don't even think about it? Right? They don't think about it. And of course, there is, you know, it has been safe and consistent. Right. And so right. it just isn't, you know, part of the, right. of the zeitgeist. Right. And there's a small percentage from, from wind and solar and then the rest is uh, hydroelectricity. Yeah. But it's one of those things. And, and I know that other jurisdictions in Canada are, are thinking about this too. And, and I, I do think it's going to be developed in, in Canada increasingly. Well, that's so great. I mean, you know, we're doing stupid things in New York. We shut down Indian Point, which is the uh, big nuclear power plant uh, plants that were feeding New York City, providing about a third of the city's electricity. California shut down one of the two remaining nuclear plants uh, a couple of years ago, and it's about to shut down. The last one, Diablo Canyon, I think within a year or so. I mean, it's just completely crazy. If you're pushing for emission-free electricity to shut down these large, reliable uh, sources, baseload sources of electricity, it just beggars belief. Yeah, and and, and how are they replacing it? What's the what's the yeah, strategy? Well, California's not putting in gas either, right? So it's going to be wind and solar, and the grid is going to be intermittent, and they won't have enough power, and then people are sort of start to get mad right yeah um you know it's a yeah. lot nobody has the experts of course have thought through these issues none of the politicians or the regulators have done that it's like you know the president biden uh is cutting back on domestic oil and gas production with one hand and on the other hand he's urging opec and russia to ramp up their production so you know, energy is complicated. There are lots of interactions. And unless you thought about them, you're going to be doing pretty stupid things. Well, that that somehow brings us to time. I could I was I almost wanted to leap into the geopolitics of it, but that would take us so many more <laughs> hours that we don't have. And it's such a sunny, nice day over here as um, we're recording. Uh, but first of all, my thank you to you for for joining me today and taking us through this. Okay, you're welcome. I mean, you know, as a professor, my goal is always to try to inform people, uh, given the facts, and not to persuade them one way or the other. Well, we'll leave that with 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 listeners. And although I I bet you we persuaded a couple people on nuclear at least. Okay, we'll, good. We'll follow up <laughs> with that. <laughs> as always, uh, right. my thanks as well to uh, to to Carolyn uh, Smith and to Aaron Reynolds who make the show not just possible. 
uh, but better than it would be without them. And, and again, uh, thanks to you, Steve Kuden, for, for joining me here today. Okay, wonderful to be talking with you. Take care.